0: Okay, so we are going into the third and final sermon as we tackle the story of Samson. Uh, hopefully you've been around for the, some of the first two. We had Spencer talk and then Jeremiah. After that, both of them did an awesome job. Uh, but if you missed it, uh, good news. The first three verses of this passage gives us an instant summary of the two major things you need to know about Samson uh, before we dig into chapter 16. Uh, we didn't read it, so I'm just going to give you a really fast summary here. Uh, so... Uh, Starting from verse 1. Samson goes to Gaza. He ends up spending the night with a prostitute. Poor start. His enemies find out, make a plan to attack in the morning. Samson figures out there's a trap, leaves at midnight, and in an enormous flex, picks up the entire gate of the town, walks it out to a hill a ways away, and leaves it there. Classic move. (laughs) And so that's what we get. Right? So the two things that we remember out of this, they're pretty clear. Uh, Number one, Samson has a very seriously unhealthy relationship with women. Uh, Number two, Samson is incredibly, incredibly divinely strong. And both of those things will show up as we talk. So... With those two core facts in mind, we're going to tackle verses 4 to 22. It's the lion's share of the passage here. Uh, This is the story of Samson and Delilah, which Sam has already read uh, most of for us. And statistically, if you know anything about Judges, this is the passage that you're statistically uh, familiar with uh, as far as this is concerned. Pop culture even loves this story. So we're going to start with a frank assessment of what happens in this passage. Um, Samson's actions are outrageous and difficult to believe. Uh, He plays at giving away the secret of his strength to Delilah three times, uh, and in response, she sets him up for death three times. Samson doesn't care, continues in the relationship, and then eventually just gives up, gives the secret away, at which point Delilah, surprising no one but Samson, betrays him again, and this time he loses his strength and is captured. In my prep for this, I had a subtitle for this section, and it said, Is Samson an Idiot? Okay? (laughs) It's a fair question, but as we dig into this, it's important to keep in mind, and we've everybody's talked about this as we've gone through. Uh, the authors have a goal here and an audience in mind, God and the human author, and the audience is primarily—it's not us, though we we figure in—is the Israelites. And there's a really intentional parallel at play between Samson pointedly ignoring the danger of his relationship with Delilah. And the nation of Israel pointedly ignoring the danger of worshiping the gods and goddesses of the Canaanites and everyone around. And for us, we get the exact same treatment, as this highlights how, maybe you've noticed this, our proclivity to keep pretty obvious idols and temptations active in our lives, uh, regardless of the obvious spiritual danger uh, that comes out of them. And so the author recounts this story of Samson and Delilah, and he wants, they want us to feel disbelief, but then for us to turn the spotlight back on ourselves and be like, right, I do that. So that's sort of the, the high-level framework. Uh, but then at the same time, we don't want to just treat Samson like a parable. Samson isn't a fictional character used to just illustrate a point. We believe he's a real person. He made decisions in the same world that we do. He was, interacting as, well, he was interacting with the same God that we do, and he was making mistakes, perhaps not at the same caliber as us, but still making mistakes like we do. And so we can't just shout, it's symbolic, and then move on. We have to actually look at him as a human and see what's going on here. What contributes to a fall like this for a man like this? So we've got sort of three points here. And there's a summary slide, and then there's actual slides. Ignore the summary slide. It's not that helpful. Okay? So, number one, uh, Samson's relationship with Delilah trumps everything else. This has already been hinted at. uh, But in many ways, uh, this story story is the the culmination of a whole lifetime of idolatry uh, of women in Samson's life. Uh, The passage tells us it opens saying he loved Delilah, a word that depressingly doesn't show up in any of his other interactions with women, including his wife. Uh, And far from making his relationship with Delilah better, his love just seems to make him more willing to do whatever it takes to keep it going. Three times Samson is set up for capture by Delilah. And we ask the question, is he an idiot? But the character that we're presented with in these chapters isn't a fool what we see more often with Samson is actually someone who's understandably overconfident being the giant that he is and so more likely he makes the connection between Delilah and the Philistine attacks uh, but he doesn't care he's wicked strong and he loves Delilah and so he's willing to look past a little subterfuge and attempted murder to keep that relationship alive we've all been there um right Jeremiah talked to us last week about the danger of allowing love as a feeling to guide us into relationships that tear and pick at our relationship with God. And so in reading this story, we should ask ourselves some questions. Are there relationships in our lives or elements in our relationships that are pulling us away from God? Um... And there's sort of an easy route here, especially if, I, I think, if you're past the dating stage, there's an easy thing to think about old relationships and be like, oh, yeah, I did a bad job with those. And then you don't have to do anything now because you're like, I'm obviously way better than that. Um, I would encourage us to be brutal and current in answering these questions. Uh, how does our behavior change around our coworkers? Often does. Uh, what sort of conversations dominate when we're with our closest or oldest friends? Are we a net positive spiritual force in the life of our spouse and vice versa? Obviously, a delicate conversation, but an important question. Uh, If you're in an MC or some other sort of Christian group, what do you talk about when there isn't an obvious curriculum happening? Now, the point here isn't to feel guilty about not being spiritual gurus all the time. We're humans. We're not one-dimensional. There's a lot happening, but we have to keep in mind that the default posture and direction of relationships is not intentional, and it's not God-oriented. It's usually, and we see this in Samson, it's usually self-oriented. We usually use relationships to validate ourselves in a million different ways, however we might be looking for that. And so as we enter into relationships, we have to be wary. And admittedly, the end result is likely (laughs) not going to be having our hair shaved off in the night and our eyes stabbed out, Um, but it is a steadily increasing willingness to set our identity in Christ aside for the sake of maintaining the status quo in our relationships. So we need to be vigilant. The second reason is basically the polar opposite of that. If on the one hand Samson's willing to do anything to keep his relationship with Delilah alive, on the other, he does absolutely nothing to seek out community and relationships that might keep him accountable. We meet a few people in his life that try to get involved. We have his, his parents, certainly, his short-lived wife, not that kind of short-lived. Um, and they try to influence him, sort of for better or for worse, but each with little effect. And we don't hear anything about friends in Samson's life at all. Granted, just because Scripture doesn't say it doesn't mean it wasn't happening. Um, We could easily imagine that there was a lot of people looking to attach their name to the strongest man in Israel who was just dealing out death everywhere. But we can also, at the same time, imagine that there wasn't a whole lot of those people looking to call him to account for his actions, given that he could tear them in half right? Accountability is a hard enough thing with regular people, with us, much less with him. And Samson's behavior reflects the behavior of somebody who no one's challenging. He does whatever he wants. And so this passage finds him entirely isolated. Past two years have absolutely been the toughest spiritually of my entire life, so far. I don't know if any of you can relate um but over that time i w- have been made witness to what i can only describe as a functionally a miraculous level of steadiness in the mc that i was a part of during that period specifically uh, the guys cuz at some point we had to stop meeting for for potluck and stuff like that um and so every thursday i'd sign into this same bloody zoom call with nothing in the tank at all and just like hello um, and most of the time, none of my friends did either. There was four of us. It's two years of this. Um, but there was this sort of dogged commitment amongst the four of us. Not that we never miss, but we we're just like, you show up for the guy next to you. You just show up. You just show up. And God showed up in that, in these, like, quiet little, no dramatic moments. There was no revival during the past two years, but there were small moments of of just consolation and comfort that helped us get through what was a garbage fire of the past two years. And our lives are not even particularly bad knowing other people's stories. And I know I I can't say, there's no equation that says, if that hadn't have been there, I would have become this or anything like that, but you don't have to Google very hard to find a ton of articles talking about what the impacts of isolation and loneliness have been over the past two years. Negative. Um... So it was a benefit for me. With that in mind, though, I want to acknowledge that some of us started this pandemic in an MC or in a community and now find themselves comparatively by yourselves. And that is not terribly surprising because over the past year, we've seen churches fall apart. We've seen tons and tons of divorce of just businesses, partnerships falling apart, friendships, and tons of this. There are so many relationships to grieve over the past two years. And so as I talk about what was a pillar of steadiness for me over the past two years, I don't want it to be a, and if you just had to buckled down a little bit more and showed up to those Zoom calls, you would have been right there too. Because it's just been grief for the past two years, uh, big G and small depending on, on your situation, and so I, I just want you to know that I, it sucks, and then beyond those people, there's a ton of us that even at the beginning of the pandemic weren't in an MC and didn't have a community around us, and we're just trying to make friends, make connections, maybe you were newly moved, any of those things, and so then the past two years has just been heaviness forever and ever, and if that's you, Certainly, you have my sympathy, but more importantly, I just want to say that Jesus does see you in that, and the Gospels show us a picture of a man that felt what it was like to be by himself, to be abandoned by close friends, to not have the support that certainly he deserved, and not in a hypothetical sense. And so if that's you, Jesus sees you in that. And Church of the City, we've already talked about this a little bit with the elders, is in a really challenging place with that, because we think MCs are awesome and that they're a great antidote to the dangers of isolation uh, and loneliness, Uh, but we've got a ton of people because of the last two years in many ways that are waiting to join MCs, and then because of the last two years and other things, we don't have a ton of leaders to lead those. And this isn't a pitch, okay, we already had the pitch. Um... (laughs) But it is a challenge to consider the weight of loneliness that is on the world, our city, and our church right now in a particular way. Yes, North America is always lonely. We're bad at that. But particularly now. And to bring ourselves before God and to consider how we might stand in that gap a little bit moving forward. And in Samson, we see a picture of where isolation can lead. There's no way that a total lack of community doesn't play into the self-deception and arrogance that leads him into the destructive relationship with Delilah. Not that we can't make mistakes in community. We sure can. But it's one of the major ways that God shepherds us past our blind spots. Spoilers. So, there's the two. Final one is still relational, but it's just tied directly to Samson's relationship with God. Uh, Verse twenty is arguably the most tragic point in the story uh he is betrayed his hair is shaved off he wakes up says i'll go out like i always have and he doesn't notice it says he didn't realize that the lord had left him and then there's this tragic scene that doubtless comes after where the champion of israel charges out ready to just wreak havoc and the first foot soldier he encounters just lays him out and he's done But the real tragedy is that moment where suddenly Samson, the guy called by God to be a judge, wakes up and doesn't even realize that God's gone. And it's not super surprising because we've been reading his story so far. It's not like he's been this picture of devoutness. But we need to ask, knowing the author's intent here, um, what's what's going on? And what I want to present is, I I believe that the author is showing us a picture of a man that confuses his output in the service of God with the presence and approval of God. We know that Samson's chosen by God to be a judge and we know that strength is the way that he does that. He's supposed to defeat the enemies of Israel and he does that with his strength and for some reason, even when the conflicts are selfish, like when he lights their fields on fire for fun, it's not for fun. Um, God still shows up, gives him the strength to do it. And so by the end of this, it seems that because that victory, these victories is what God commissioned Samson to do, he starts to mistake his ability to have victory over the Philistines as evidence of God's continued affirmation of his actions. And this is a wicked, sneaky temptation for us today. Because we're, if we're Christians, there's a ton of activity that we're called to. Right? We've got uh, the task of uh, spreading the gospel, whether that's explicitly through evangelism or through showing compassion uh, to those that are suffering uh, and in need. Uh, we are called to pursue our relationships with godly intent. If we have got a family, to raise our family with integrity and love, to work diligently at whatever job God has given us, participate in church, dot, 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 so many things. And in all these things, there's the opportunity and expectation that we show the gospel, but Success in any of these areas or apparent success isn't an indication of the fact that God is with us and that God is present and that we have a relationship with him. And especially in North America where personal achievement and success is like number one, for us to fall into that lie is very, very tempting. To get into this sort of mental framework subconsciously or consciously where we're like, okay, so if God sent me to this school and my grades are good, or if God guided me into marriage and my spouse is happy with me, or God brought me to this church and I'm serving consistently, or just going, uh, or if God gave me this job and I just got a promotion, God called me to be a pastor and the church is growing, God helped me meet unbelievers and they like me, God blessed me with kids and they're growing up half decently, then he must be with me, right? But we have to know this. A cursory survey of people around us will show that there are thousands and thousands of people with healthy marriages, successful jobs, and well-behaved kids, and even some friends that don't give God the time of day. None of those things are indicative of that. And if we're really honest, we know that we can do a half-decent job at 90% of what we are called to as Christians without God. At least a half-decent job to the point that other people will say, hey, great job. Nice. Church music, this comes up all the time. I don't mean, to, like, I love church music, but we're not playing Bach up here, okay? And so, like, we work really hard, but also we know that, like, we don't play up here. And there are, it's a temptation to not bring God into that. We know we can play Come Thou Fount, and everyone's like, yes, ready to go. And that temptation is there for every part of our lives. And that's what Samson finds himself in. Now, God's patience is magnificent and unending, and it's totally possible that we might live our, our entire, some part of our lives entirely on our own strengths and never have God withdraw from us as dramatically as he does from Samson. Totally possible. But it should burn us a little bit if we take these things as a call from God and only ever bring our human effort to it and not include him in it. Even though the fruits that come from when God participates are are more subtle oftentimes or farther off that we don't even see them, to participate in the work of God without seeking God in that should burn us. But from Samson, regardless of what God might do in our lives, God does withdraw. And in Samson's life, the final fruit of living on the borrowed strength of God for the sake of his own pleasure is weakness, captivity, blindness, and humiliation. And this is prophetic too, points towards Israel's steadily declining into idolatry and then eventually their capture by Babylon, Assyria, Roman. Dot, dot, dot. But God also does quite a bit through Samson's death. This is rude, but I want to watch my time here. Yeah. The angel announced his birth, said that Samson would begin to save Israel, and regardless of motivation, uh, we read that Samson killed more Philistines in death than he did in life. He brought down a temple, huge swath of the Philistines ruling class, in purely military terms, he did great as a judge. And you can imagine Israelites sort of proclaiming the victory of Samson even as he dies, that God brought victory out of his death. And a part of us goes, oh, that's like Jesus, Nice victory at a death classic classic christian thing um and there's a ton of parallels between jesus and samson if we sort of think about it but we also know in our hearts that it's not the same kind of death right like we look at samson we're like well that's not that's not what we're we're gunning towards here whereas with jesus we are and to help us with that i just want to quickly lay out sort of this framework to understand what that difference is with an eye on the time um I think there's three kinds of deaths, three kinds of martyrdoms that we all choose. Uh, There's a martyrdom of vengeance, of protection, and then there's the way of Jesus. Samson's a martyr of vengeance. He dies to justify himself, to get vengeance for a wrong dealt to him. We read it in 28. He says, God, give me strength one time, even though it's always been God, to avenge myself for my eyes. And the world loves that kind of a martyr. We've got lots of stories of vengeance. John Wick Kill Bill, et cetera, et cetera. And even as any human sort of resonates with that, because the desire to justify ourselves is like as easy as breathing. So that's the martyr of vengeance. Martyr of protection, also easy to visualize. People that just lay their lives on the line for other people, to protect people that are unfairly attacked. And the world finds that super easy to get on board with as well. Uh, I mean, we've had this with the Ukrainian president, just like tons of people like, wow, this guy. Tons of stories about that kind of self-sacrifice in the face of it. And Christians should seek that out. We should be sacrificial in the midst of it. But that's not what Jesus did either. Jesus isn't vengeful or self-justifying in his death. Um, He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't jump down off the cross to show he could and then get back on. But he also doesn't die for the innocent. And he's very transparent about that. He dies to redeem the guilty. And not just those guilty in the eyes of the world. Romans 5 reminds us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that's the kind of death that Jesus died. And that's the kind of death that as Christians we're called to. There's few of us that run the risk of being real martyrs. But as people living in a broken world, we will suffer and encounter suffering in small and large ways. And the way we approach suffering, I think, suggests the sort of martyr we might be. We're certainly not called to vengeance in response to suffering, and we are called to defend those who are suffering, to stand up for the oppressed and vulnerable. But when Jesus suffered, he brought neither selfish vengeance nor one-sided protection. He brought an all-encompassing, active, saving love. There's a great great quote from Thomas Merton. He said, The Christian must not only accept suffering, he must make it holy. And that's what Jesus did. And it's that impossibility of a death and a life that the world doesn't know what to do with, and that even as Christians should confront us with the impossibility of living into that on our own. Uh, Sam, you can come up. I know we're running. It's that impossibility of not just dying for people that obviously deserve it and not just dying to justify ourselves that should drive us towards Jesus because that's not an easy thing. That's not like a give me six months to prep and we'll be good to go. If we're looking at it properly, if we're not narrowing our vision of the Christian life and call, then we should feel the weight of impossibility when confronted with it and then turn to Jesus. We're going to take communion and just briefly just give us three hopes so we're not just thinking about impossible as we go into it as we face the impossibility we have the hope of jesus who died for us while we were enemies knowing the impossibility of our sins we have the hope of the spirit who empowers and encourages us to live sacrificially to grow in dying to ourselves daily like jesus did and we have the hope of the father who loves us entirely, who delights in our growth but doesn't wait till we do to love us, and who will ultimately bring justice and restoration to the world in its entirety. So, if you have your elements, we read in 1 Corinthians 11 The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Lord, I pray that the impossibility of what you call us to and the majesty and mercy of the fact that you made a way for us to walk in that would land on us heavily and yet lightly this morning. And that you would help us to sing, not just loud, not just invested outwardly, but that we would take this into our hearts and worship you well, now and afterwards. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.